Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. In this episode, we have part two of Hardball by Jonathan W. Sweet, a new pulp story featuring the Red Jackal, a crime-fighting hero in Minnesota's Twin Cities. This story is included in our recent release from Brick Pickle Media, Minnesota Not So Nice, now available in print and ebook format. It features new and retro pulp stories set in the state of Minnesota. It can be ordered from Amazon or any other bookstore. You can get a discounted price by ordering direct from our website, and that link is in the show notes to find more on Minnesota Not So Nice. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2020. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. Or you can support us directly through the Anchor website. And with that, on with the show. Dead Ball by Jonathan W. Sweet. 7. By 9.45 a.m. the next day, Blake was back in his office at the Gazette discussing the case with his younger brother David and Rob Moore. The detectives won't say it, but I think they're done, Moore said. Wrong place, wrong time, and too much money to be throwing around. <sighs> Maybe they're right. But it doesn't feel right. Something's off. I don't know. Either way, he's dead, but I just wish I had something to tell his sister. Even if it's just for her, I'd like to get to the bottom of this. I'm thinking of hiring a private dick to look into it. Sure, sure, that's an idea, Blake replied. We have plenty of contact from our work here at the paper and over the brickyard. Why don't you let us take care of finding someone for you? David, look into that, why don't you? Uh, yeah, I'll take care of it, David responded, sounding a little unsure of himself. Moore ran his hands through his hair, accentuating his receding hairline and tired features. All right, thanks, guys. I've got to get going anyway. Josh's sister is arriving at Union Depot soon. She's coming down to claim the body, and I told her I would help with funeral arrangements. Try to get some rest, too, Rob, Blake said as the portly man made his way out of the office. I know it seems dark now, but don't give up. You've got a lot of friends here for you. After Moore had left, closing the door behind him, David glanced over at his brother. Uh, I assume I should belay that order to find a detective? Yes, yes, let, let's put it off for a couple days at least. It could very well prove unnecessary. I take that to mean the Red Jackal is making some progress? David, ten years Blake's junior, was one of the few people who knew of his double life as publisher and crime fighter. The junior Randolph had recently graduated from the University of Chicago and returned to help run the Randolph businesses and assist in other family endeavors. I think so. I've got Dan Finley checking things out at the Pines. I hope to hear an update any minute, he said, glancing at his watch. On another note, Big Brother, have you given any more thought to my proposal? I think with the right package of incentives, we can bring movie making here to Minnesota, and Senator Charles agrees. He thinks it could be a great way to bring more business right here to Brickton. I know you're excited about it, and there's potential there. I'll give you that. But I still need to look at everything. It's a big investment to make it an uncertain... The rest of his response was cut off by the buzzing of the closed-circuit communicator in his desk, which offered a direct line back to the Randolph family estate on the outskirts of Brickton. Yes, Jeffrey, Blake said as he grabbed the handset from out of his second drawer. Jeffrey Stone was not only Blake's valet and driver, but also a veteran of Great Britain's Foreign Intelligence Service during the Great War. Uh, yes, sir. That call you were expecting at 10 came in and is scheduled. The party said that he has found a solution to the problem you've been attempting to address. 
His request an immediate meeting to discuss his intelligence. He also mentioned the subject of remuneration, sir. Ah, uh, yes, I'm sure he did, Jeffrey. Thank you. Call him back and tell him to meet me at location 12B at noon. I assume you'll be needing the car and my services again. Yes, meet me outside the Gazette in 20 minutes. Oh, of course, sir. I will be there with the utmost speed. Blake turned back to David as he hung up the phone. Well, Dan's got something. Looks like the Red Jackal's another meeting. Can you take care of the afternoon staff meeting? Of course. And remember to watch your back, Blake. His nickname's not Weasel Dan only because of his looks. Eight. In order to better hide his identity from his enemies and his network of informants, the Red Jackal kept a number of locations across the Twin Cities for clandestine meetings. Coded names and numbers, not only to his associates, also helped to keep those meeting places secret. The Depression had, unfortunately, provided a wealth of abandoned buildings to choose from. Location 12B, the site for the Jackal's meeting with Weasel Dan, was the basement of an empty office building near the State Capitol building in St. Paul. The Jackal was already waiting there by the time Finley arrived for their noon meeting. Jeffrey and the car were well hidden nearby, ready to be signaled at a moment's notice. What do you have for me, Dan? The jackal asked as Finley entered through the shadowy doorway. Something's happening. I hear Creepy showed up for a few minutes two nights ago and met with Weaver. The same night Josh was killed, the jackal mused. Yeah, sounds like it. Anyway, he had a meeting with Weaver in his office, but otherwise ain't nobody seen him around the pines for about a week. But here's the big news. The gang has a big score planned. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. That amount stunned the jackal. This was no simple bank robbery, an observation he shared with Finley. His assumption that a holdup or hijacking of some sort was on the docket. The Cooper gang was well known for their bank heists. They had left a trail of dead and wounded bank guards across the Midwest, hitting dozens of local banks. Are you sure they weren't exaggerating? Where'd you get that? All the Borkus brothers are in town. You know Albert likes to talk when he starts drinking. He was babbling away at the table until Fred showed up and told him to clam up. Affiliates of the Cooper gang, the Borkus family, only came in on the biggest heists. They've been rumored to be hiding out in Northwoods of Minnesota, following a bungled robbery of the Reserve Bank in St. Louis. The debacle had left six employees and two police officers dead, and the Borkuses with no reward from the heist. Albert Borkus was the youngest and dumbest of the boys. So, they're bringing in the muscle. The Borkus boys. That's one family tree you don't want to climb. From a family of backwoods bootleggers in the Ozarks, the six Borkus boys were big, strong, mean, and not too bright. And nobody was really sure if the boys were brothers, cousins, or both. Including them. Whatever it is, that means Creepy is trying to keep his guys out of and let the Borkus boys do the dirty work. Did you get anything else from Albert? A location, a name, anything? I don't know. Albert was pretty far gone. He was talking about a lot of stuff that didn't make sense, and I was trying not to be obvious that I was paying attention. Uh, I think he said something about a farm in California. California? I don't think the Borkus boys have ever been west of the Dakotas. This is getting odder and odder. Okay, think about it. Did any of the other boys say anything? Finley crinkled his eyes and thought. You know, Johnny was going after one of the waitresses pretty hard. She gave him the brush off and he said she wouldn't do that next week. Maybe that means something? I'd wager it means he's expecting a big payday, but how? 
The Red Jackal spent the rest of that day checking in with informants across the cities, becoming increasingly frustrated. There was little doubt that something big was in the wind. Most of the Cooper gang gone underground, nowhere to be seen. The more deplorable citizens of the metropolis were abuzz with the news of the Borkus boys' arrival in town, although no one seemed to know where they were hiding out either. It was a stark departure for Harry Cooper, who loved the attention he got by going out on the town. Whether it was the Pine, the 5-8 Club in Minneapolis, or some other mob hangout, it was rare to see the night when Creepy didn't show up with a new beauty on his arm. For someone with that well-deserved nickname, he does remarkably well at the opposite sex. The Jackal mused to himself. The work continued after dark as the Jackal roamed the mean streets of St. Paul. While he did manage to break up the robbery of a liquor store and thwart two muggings, he didn't get any closer to a solution. By 1 a.m., he'd retrieved the Packard and returned to the Brickton estate. Sleep eluded him even at that late hour. 9. Better equipped than the average man to handle a sleepless night, Blake Randolph was up and having his breakfast by 7 a.m. the next morning, as was his habit. Despite his frequent nocturnal activities, Randolph almost always drank his coffee and ate his morning meal at that time. It was also usually his only opportunity to peruse the region's morning papers before getting caught up in the regular doings of the newsroom. It was a schedule that was rarely modified and one that Jeffrey protected unless imperative business interfered. That was why Blake ignored the phone when it rang and knew the day was not going to get off to a good start when he saw Jeffrey standing in the doorway of the dining room. I do apologize, sir, but Mr. Stanley is on the phone for you. He insists it is an emergency. Rod Stanley was the Gazette's longtime city editor and the man who kept the newsroom going. It was newsmen like Stanley they had in mind when the phrase ink running in his veins was coined. Yes, well, let's see what our illustrious city editor needs. I'll take it in here, he said, reaching for the telephone handset. Good morning, Rod. What's going on? It's a big one, boss. All hell's breaking loose at the St. Paul Police Headquarters. No official confirmation yet, but we're hearing that Elaine Sullivan was kidnapped last night. Blake slammed his hand down on the dining table. Kidnapped? Damn it! That must be... What, boss? I can't hear you. It's crazy down here. Nothing, Rod. Who do you have chasing it? Jennifer Jones is already down at headquarters. All right, if anyone can get to the straight dope, it's her. I'm coming down. Elaine Sullivan, the 25-year-old heir to the Sullivan's department store fortune. Sullivan's was Minnesota's answer to Marshall Fields, with his flagship store at downtown St. Paul Landmark. Sullivan's father was one of the wealthiest men in Minnesota. It seemed clear just what the young pitcher had stumbled into at the Pines. The question was whether it was too late to do anything about it. Still nothing official, but I've got it off the record confirmation that it's true. Jennifer Jones' voice said over the telephone. I'm also hearing there's already been a ransom demand. $250,000. Okay, Miss Jones, good work. Keep at it, Stanley responded. A quarter million dollars, Stanley exclaimed after both men had hung up their handsets in Blake's office. Well, if anyone can afford that, it's Sullivan. But even for him, that's a pretty penny, Blake observed. Still, it's a big risk. You might be able to get some of the St. Paul cops look the other way on the minor stuff, but this is pretty big. And isn't Sullivan friends with the president? That's right, Stanley replied. Sullivan was a big supporter last fall and at the convention. That's going to mean lots of pressure. Okay, keep on it, Rod. Let me know if anything else breaks. No wonder Creepy farmed this one out, Blake thought as Stanley left his office. The heat's going to be incredible. I'm missing something. I know it's right there. I've got to take the Sullivan kids somewhere. They're not going to hide her at the Pines. 
anywhere in St. Paul or Minneapolis is too hot. Across the river to Wisconsin? <sighs> Out in the country somewhere, anyway. And what does California have to do with it? Wait! Oh my god. He reached for the communicator in his desk, using his direct line to Jeffrey. Jeffrey, we need to track down Dan Finley right now. He usually eats breakfast with the other overnight employees at Casey's Diner. Luckily, Finley was a creature of habit. Within ten minutes, Jeffrey had him on the line. You know who this is? Blake said, changing his voice to the deeper version he used when in his guise of the Red Jackal. Yeah, it's the... Stop. Right there. Now think very hard, Dan. Are you absolutely sure? Albert Borkus said a farm in California the other night. Yeah, sure. It seemed weird to me, but... Were those his exact words? Or did he say San Francisco? Well, yeah, but San Francisco's in California, right? I didn't know they had farms there, but, you know, I've never been west of Lake Minnetonka. Oh, Dan, you idiot. Pick up a map. There's a San Francisco township in Carver County. It's nothing but farms. Huh, what do you know? I wonder why they call it that. But there was no response as Blake had already slammed down the phone. Ten. The sun setting over the farmhouse off of State Highway 41 would have made a pretty picture at another time. As it was for the Red Jackal, it was only an impediment to the coming darkness. With his enhanced senses, darkness was a friend to the Jackal. In retrospect, it had been relatively easy to find the old dairy farm. By late afternoon, Jeffrey's efforts had uncovered a handful of potential sites. The Jackal's reconnaissance of those locations identified this operation, which had far too much activity for a farm that had been repossessed by the bank. He left Jeffrey at the estate to coordinate his efforts, with instructions to notify local authorities if he didn't hear from the jackal within two hours. The Packard was hidden a quarter mile away, just off the highway. The last several hours convinced him that the only ones on site were the six Borkus boys, at least for now. He mentally reviewed the layout of the farm. Red barn about 300 feet away, Black Lincoln just beside the barn, one guard at the car, white farmhouse another 500 feet or so from the barn, with front and back doors, Curtains blocking any view into or out of the windows. Outhouse 100 feet behind the back door. Within minutes, the darkness of the moonless night was almost complete. The jackal crept from the hiding spot at the tree line across the open field to the back of the barn. Working quickly, he slipped through a gap in the wall he'd spotted earlier. Once inside the barn, he stopped to listen. Not a sound, known in the barn as he had suspected. But it wasn't empty. Two Ford V8-powered 18s were hidden inside. He slipped a short knife from his boot and made short work of the white wall tires. Exiting the same way he'd entered, the jackal made his way to the front corner of the barn. The glowing eye of a cigarette gave away the location of the guard posted to watch the cars. With one swift leap, the jackal was on him. Covering his mouth and cutting off his air supply, the jackal had him unconscious before he could raise an alarm. He turned over the unsuccessful watchman and recognized him as Benny Borkus. All right, Benny, let's find somewhere to keep you out of the way. Binding his wrists... The jackal dragged the criminal into the barn. You know, Benny, it wouldn't kill you to take a bath every once in a while. After depositing the gangster, he returned to disable the Lincoln and grab Benny's shotgun. One down, five to go. With the darkness hiding his movement, the jackal silently moved to the rear of the house, positioning himself in bushes near the outhouse. Time to wait for nature to call. 
He noticed early in the day that the poor were using the outhouse regularly, so either there wasn't indoor plumbing in the farmhouse or it wasn't working. It only took a few minutes for one of the Borkus boys to emerge from the back door and make their way to the latrine. Before the door closed, the jackal managed to get a good look inside. Three men all sitting at a kitchen table, beers and cards in front of them. When the unknown Borkus finished his business and emerged from the outhouse, the jackal delivered a swift blow to the temple to stock of any shotgun. He quickly glanced at the house to be sure no one there had heard anything. It seemed to have been quiet enough. He searched the unconscious man, finding two knives and a Smith & Wesson thirty-eight. He deposited those and the shotgun into the depths of the outhouse hole, then pulled them into the small building. Still smells better than Benny, he thought to himself. He just finished doing that when the back door flew open. Eli, where the hell are you? came the yell from the back steps. I'm fucking heading, the jackal said from the backyard, intentionally unintelligible. What? Come on, Fred wants you back inside, the Borkus said as he continued walking toward the small outbuilding. Albert Borkus glanced up just in time to see a blur of motion from the large maple tree. Huh, he blurted as the jackal knocked him to the ground. As the unconscious Albert fell to the grass, his finger pulled the trigger of the Tommy gun in his hand. With the element of insurprise... With the element of surprise gone, the jackal didn't bother to incapacitate Albert, only pausing to throw his gun into the underbrush. He charged the back door of the house, forty-five drawn and ready. As he burst into the kitchen, he found two more Tommy guns aimed in his direction. A quick shot to the right hit one of the remaining Borkus boys in the chest, and he swiftly moved to the left to take care of the second. Tommy! he heard as he pulled the trigger and felt the bulk slam into him, spilling him over and knocking the forty-five from his hand. It also caused the shot to go off target, hitting Fred Borkus in the shoulder as he went down. He saw the open basement door behind him from which Johnny Borkus had emerged. Johnny delivered a swift blow to his midsection, but his follow-up punch slammed into the floor when the jackal rolled out of the way. The jackal sprang up as Johnny yelled in pain, delivering a roundhouse kick that sent the oldest Borkus sprawling on the floor. The jackal glanced around for his forty-five or another weapon, even as Johnny pulled his own knife and charged. The jackal deflected the attack with his armored wrist, then grabbed Johnny's arm, twisting until Johnny's finger slipped off the knife. Screaming, Johnny launched himself at the jackal, fingers searching for a grip on the vigilante's throat. The jackal easily slipped the attack and pivoted around behind Johnny. Johnny charged while the jackal sidestepped the attack. Too late, Johnny realized he was headed for the open basement door. He tried to stop and slipped on a spot of blood, screaming as he plummeted to the cellar floor. One glance at the unnatural angle of Johnny's neck at the bottom of the stairs told the jackal all he needed to know. He turned his attention to the other two Borkus boys in the room. Tommy was dead as well from his gunshot. Fred, on the other hand, while unconscious from the blood loss, would survive if he received medical care soon. That was coming from the basement. The jackal moved carefully down the stairs to discover Elaine Sullivan bound and gagged on an old wooden chair. Miss Sullivan, he said as he removed her gag. I think you're safe now. Who who are you? She asked cautiously, eyeing his mask and the blood on his clothing. You can say I'm a friend. I would advise you to close your eyes as we leave. It got a bit messy up there. With no Borkus boys to get in the way, the return trip to the Packer was uneventful, with only a quick stop to tie up Albert Borkus and toss him in the outhouse. A quick call to Jeffrey over the car's radio had the Carver County Sheriff's Department dispatched. By the time they arrived to arrest the four surviving gangsters, the jackal and his charge were long gone. 11. As it turned out, the kidnappers had treated Elaine Sullivan remarkably well. She had been fed regularly and not been mistreated in any way, if one ignores the ropes and gag. 
She shared her story with the jackal as he drove her back into the city, heading toward her St. Paul home. It was well known that the fiercely independent Elaine, much to her father's dismay, volunteered regularly at soup kitchens and other establishments with similar goals. She had been leaving a mission in the Gateway District of Minneapolis when three men grabbed her and threw her in the back of a car. They had driven just a few blocks and switched to one of the Fords the jackal had seen at the San Francisco farm. They had immediately driven to the farm. Since then, she had been confined in the farmhouse's cellar. I must say, Miss Sullivan, I'm impressed by your resilience. I've seen so-called tough guys fall apart under those conditions. And I'm just a poor little woman, she said sharply. No offense meant, Miss Sullivan. I have the utmost respect for what you do on a daily business and your obvious strength. You're the Red Jackal, aren't you? Sullivan asked as they neared her family's Summit Avenue mansion. The Jackal was thrown by the sudden shift in subject. Ah, uh, well... You can't do what I do and not have heard of the Red Jackal. The lone hero fighting a corrupt system. For the people I work with, you're a hero. It's not a name I picked for myself, and I prefer to keep a low profile. I would appreciate discretion. He slowed down and pulled to the side of the street before turning to look at the young woman. Speaking of which, he said, gesturing in the direction of her home, it appears there is quite a bit of police attention to your abode. It would be most helpful to me if I could drop you off this short distance away. Well, then I suppose I can say it was some unknown here who rescued me. And drop me off. As a poor distraught woman, I really can't remember anything that happened. Something tells me that few people who know you will accept that. Well, it will be good enough for the papers. Until we meet again, Red Jackal, Elaine Sullivan said with an enigmatic smile as she exited the Packard. And no sign of creepy? David asked. No, it appears he skipped town ahead of any consequences. It's been two days and nobody's seen hide nor hair, Blake said. The authorities seem to have no interest in putting much effort in finding him for that matter. The brothers were once again in the offices of the Gazette, discussing the Jackal's latest adventure. The Borkus boys had been arrested by Carver County deputies and turned over to the St. Paul authorities. Their expensive mouthpiece was working to get them sprung from jail, citing the unorthodox arrests. And the Red Jackal? Blake smiled. It seems his involvement has thus far remained unacknowledged. Miss Sullivan has been good enough and been good to her word, and it appears the Borkus boys have clammed up as well. Sharp rapping came at the door of Blake's office. Before either brother could even acknowledge the knock, Jennifer Jones rushed in. Okay, Chief, this time you've got to let me run with it, she started. I'm hearing the Red Jackals want to rescue Elaine Sullivan from that farm. I've got two sources that... David grinned to himself, stood up, and headed out the door. I'll be leaving you to deal with this, big brother. Good luck. He was still smiling as he made his way out of the newsroom and looked back to see Blake Randolph trapped in his office by the intrepid reporter. And that's the end of Deadball. Thanks for listening today. Just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production. We'll be back with a new episode next week.